Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored, The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Well, thanks for being here today. Would you turn with me to 2 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians. It's going to be a very familiar tune <laughs> that you're going to hear from 2 We're going to be here a while, 13 chapters, and we're back in the New Testament, and I love the epistles, so we're going to be there a while. We're going to start off by talking about the God of all comfort. And today it's going to be part one, and you're going to understand that in a minute because we're not going to get to verse 3, which is where the word comfort first surfaces. But we're going to start. We're going to start looking at the character of the God who is the God of all comfort. Let me say this as you begin to understand 2 Corinthians. Only Christ living in a person can cause that person to look for the best in somebody else, especially those who have treated that individual wrongly. That's what God's love does. God's love always, now listen carefully, gives others the benefit of the doubt. That's God's love. Only God's love. Man's love never does that. God's love does that. You say, why are you saying that, Wayne? Because Paul in 2 Corinthians is doing exactly that. He's run to the source. He's run to the Lord. He's been comforted by God. You see, the Corinthians have not treated Paul very well. But Paul has made a decision. Now, having been comforted by God, the love of God in Paul causes him to give the Corinthians the benefit of the doubt. He has very little to go on because of the way they have treated him. But God in him leads him to love them and to comfort them. The word comfort is used in some form 19 different times in 2 Corinthians. But the interesting thing is that 10 of those times is found in, in verses 3 through verse 11. It's a powerful theme of this epistle. The word for comfort would be good for us to begin to understand. It's the word parakaleo. Para means near or alongside. Kaleo means to call, to call alongside to come beside and to comfort and to encourage. It's the word used to describe the Holy Spirit who is the divine comforter. The Apostle Paul, as I've said, had had a very difficult time and experience with the believers at Corinth. In fact, his third letter, which we, has been lost, we don't know where it is. We only have First and Second Corinthians. There's been four letters written to, the, written to the Corinthians. We don't know where this particular letter is. We do know some things about it. There was somebody treating him wrongly in that church, and they wouldn't deal with him. 
And so therefore, he wrote a very severe letter to them. Now he has heard from Titus that they responded to his letter in a right way. You know, he had told Titus. He said, I'm going to choose to believe the best in these people. I believe they're going to respond to this letter, and they did. The letter that we're studying called 2 Corinthians is Paul's response to the Corinthian church for the beautiful way in which they responded to that third letter, which we don't have. Titus had taken it to them, and Paul had heard now from him that they had responded correctly. By the way, last week when I was preaching and I was giving you the introduction of all of this, I made a mistake. Wayne, you don't make mistakes. Yes, I did. I said something backwards. I got really excited about it, and it came out exactly backwards. I said that he went to Macedonia to catch up with Titus because he, he couldn't stand it. He wanted to hear the, what the, how they responded to that letter. And then he couldn't find him, so he went on to Troas and caught up with him there. Well, <laughs> I'm backwards. He went to Troas and then caught up with him in Macedonia. And so I had it backwards. Have you heard about the dyslectic, agnostic, insomniac? who stayed up all night wondering if there was a dog. But anyway, I had it backwards. I had it backwards. <laughs> Whatever, that's worth. <laughs> I was preaching one time at Wilden Park, and I asked a question to the congregation. I said, let me ask you a question. Did Moses close the door to the ark? <laughs> and everybody just kind of looked at me and went, no. <laughs> I had no clue what I'd said. Anyway, I had it backwards. So if you've taken notes, switch that. He went to Troas, caught up with him in Macedonia. Paul had even chosen, like I said, before ever sending Titus with that letter, he had chosen to believe in those Corinthians, believe the best in them. Even though they had given him no, no reason for that, it was God's love in his heart that gave them the benefit of the doubt. And what a powerful word to us in a 21st century church to learn to start believing the best in other people and beginning to trust the Christ that lives within them and to give them the benefit of the doubt as we learn to experience God's love. Well, in 2 Corinthians, instead of beginning this letter, chastening the people, which basically his first three letters did, he chooses to comfort them and shows you the change in attitude of Paul toward these Corinthian believers. Today we're going to see the awesome goodness of God, the character of God, the God of all comfort. God is good all the time. We're going to see that today. This is the God we're talking about. This is the one Paul wants them to understand. And we're going to look at three things about him today in verse 1 and in verse 2. I know some of you are already saying, Wayne, we're going to be in this book forever. Well, that might be true. <laughs> if the Lord comes back, we can just solve it with him. But we're going to verse by verse, word for word, plug our way through this time. But God is good. I want you to see his character this morning. First of all, the pleasure of God to use his people. Isn't that incredible? God wants to draw us into what he's doing. He wants to use us. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Such an awesome thing to know that God wants to work through his vessels that he had believers that come to know Christ, and Christ come to live in them. Christ wants to live through them to continue his work in their lives. He wants to use us. He has a plan for us before we ever knew him, before we were ever born. God had a plan for every individual that's in this room today, and every believer. God has a plan. Verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle. 
I want you to know something about this. Paul was called by God or, or set aside by God in his mother's womb. <laughs> now, he didn't know anything about it. God had a purpose for him and a plan for him before he was ever born. Colos uh, Galatians chapter 1, verse 15 says, But when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb. And it talks about how God had that plan long before. Little did Paul know that being born a Jew, he had no choice in that. Little did he know that being gifted with such a wonderful mind and education with Gamaliel, the greatest teacher of the law of that day, that God had a plan for him that would literally change the Gentile world. You can just see the counsel of God in heaven. And he said, you know, we need a preacher of grace, but to do that, we've got to have a Jewish man. We've got to have a man circumcised the eighth day, a man who grows up under the law. We've got to have a man that knows the law better than anybody in his day. Why? Because he's the only one who's going to fully appreciate what grace is all about. And we'll break him on the Damascus Road, and we'll call him, and we'll anoint him, and we'll make him an apostle, and he'll write three-fourths of the New Testament. Paul knew none of that. Paul was in his mother's womb, and God had a plan for him, and God had a purpose for him. Paul, an apostle, if we could all just realize today that God has a purpose and a plan for us. I shared with a little lady one day in, in Chattanooga that, that couldn't even get out of bed, and she said, I don't have any purpose in life. And I said, ma'am, listen, your heart is still beating. And as long as your heart is beating, God has a plan for you and God has a purpose for you, but I can't do anything. I said, you can pray. And that little lady became one of the greatest prayer warriors in our church. I tell you what, she got so in touch with God, if she'd have prayed for me to die, I'd have crawled in the box. God has a purpose for us. Don't you ever come to the place in your life that you say, God does not have a purpose for me. God does not have a plan for me. Oh, yes, he does, and had it before you and I were ever born. What a difference it would make if believers could understand what they're looking for is only found in Christ Jesus. He does have a purpose. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, look at this, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Now, it becomes... Very clear why Timothy is mentioned here, because he was there when the church was first begun. Timothy and Silas had come down to visit with Paul, and Acts 18 told us about that. We looked at some of it last time. And when they got there, Paul had been making tents. He quit doing that. He focused on preaching the gospel, and the church of Corinth was birthed. Paul so loves Timothy. He loves him. He calls him our brother. But in the Greek text, it's not our brother. It's the brother. You say, Wayne, what does that mean? Oh, what does that mean? What a compliment. The fact that the definite article is used there in the Greek text sets Timothy aside as the example of what a true brother in Christ ought to be. And Paul loves him for it. He calls him his fellow worker in Romans chapter 16, verse 21. He calls him my beloved and, and faithful child in the Lord in 1 Corinthians 4, 17. He calls him my true child in the faith in 1 Timothy 1.2. He calls him my son in 1 Timothy 1.18. He calls him my beloved son in 2 Timothy 1.2. He calls him God's fellow worker. What an example in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 2. But just one thing we need to know that even, Timothy, even though Timothy was there with Paul, Paul was doing the writing of the letter. How do you know that? Well, he uses the third person down to verse 15 of chapter 1, and then he switches to the first person when he says, in this confidence, I, he brings it to himself, not we, but I 
intended at first to come to you. And from then on, he begins to carry out that first person pronoun. In verse 10 of chapter 13, he says, For this reason I am writing these things. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now that statement, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, is significant at least in a couple of ways. First of all, to call himself an apostle is like holding up a badge of authority given to him by God. The other day I was coming back to the church. I had a 2 o'clock appointment. I had a lunch appointment, and I got hung up on Juan Tabot. There was a wreck of some kind. There was an ambulance. There was a fire truck. There were two police cars. And this policewoman was there, and she had blocked off the road. You could not go any further. We were stuck in traffic. Not a thing we could do. Whatever had happened over the little hill there, we could not see. And that little lady came out. She didn't have the power to stop all that traffic, but she had the authority. You know, a badge gets really bigger the more they get closer to you. You ever notice that? You ever been speeding and had one of them walk up? That uniform didn't do anything to you. It was that badge. Buddy, when they got that big badge, they can stop traffic. They can do what is necessary to solve the situation that is there. They can do whatever is needed to, to help out. Well, that badge gave her authority to do what she needed to do to deal with the situation. Now, Paul began most of his letters by pulling his badge. Paul, an apostle. Now, he didn't begin every letter that way. The letters he does begin with it, usually he's dealing with something that he has to correct, something he has to chasten, something he has to, to, to straighten out because he had to pull that badge. Just like the policewoman on Juan Tabo had a badge of authority to deal with what she had to deal with, somebody higher up who had the power had given her that badge. Paul had a badge. You see, his apostleship was a point of contention by many in the Corinthian church. You see, this is interesting. When he says Paul an apostle, that's just not a greeting and a standard greeting. Oh, no, no. He's saying something. And he pulls that out and says, Paul an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. There were those in the church of Corinth, if you've ever studied 1 Corinthians, that wanted to live their lives like they wanted to live their lives. They didn't like the intolerance of God's Word. They didn't like the intolerance of God's man who preached God's Word. And so, therefore, they tried to question his apostleship and by the very fact that he pulls out his badge shows he's dealing with an attitude that he knows is already in Corinth. In fact, he will use the last four chapters of 2 Corinthians to deal with defending his apostleship. Now, make sure you understand something. There are no apostles today like there was with the apostle Paul. They determine the doctrine of the New Testament. We, we have people today calling themselves apostles. Well, excuse me, there are no more apostles. Even Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 says that our faith was built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Nobody goes back and continues to rebuild the foundation. We build off of that foundation. They have already been given to us. We don't need to go back and redo what is already been done. But now, today, in the day we live in, we don't have apostles. If I ever tell you I'm an apostle, somebody walk up, take me by the arm, and lead me to the hospital. There's something wrong with my mind. Dinah said that. She said, if you start speaking funny things, I'm coming up, taking you by the hand, leading you off of the platform. You see, there were no, but today, when the Word of God is preached that was given to us by the apostles and the prophets, the authority of God goes right along with the Word. Therefore, the Word carries in it God's authority. 
was a pleasure for God to use Paul and Timothy as his vessel to the Gentile churches. It was a pleasure. This is what I want you to see. It was a pleasure. You see, God takes pleasure in involving us in what he's up to. You say, how do you know that, Wayne? Where do you find that in the verse? I'm so glad you asked. In verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, look at the next phrase, by the will of God. Now, do you know that there's two words translated will, but the word used here is the word telema. It is not his demand as much as it is that which brings an ex- a, a, a feeling of pleasure, that which brings joy to someone who does what he does. It's not so much he demands it as much as he takes pleasure in it. He gets joy from it. Wow. God took great pleasure. He got great joy of setting Paul apart and then Timothy and using them as vessels for the Gentile church. Isn't it interesting? that the very thing that displeased the Corinthians, Paul being an apostle, pleased the Lord and brought great joy to him. But you see, God takes pleasure in bringing us in, the pleasure of God to use his people. I wonder this morning if you feel that God can use you in your life. Yesterday I had lunch with a precious couple from down in another part of our state. And they were sitting there, and, and the lady just began to weep. And she said, Wayne, it's so wonderful that God would let me be a part of what he's doing. She had a part of a neighbor coming to know Christ. And she said, I just can't believe it. I just can't believe it. When was the last time you got so overwhelmed that God wanted to use you? When was the last time that God used you in a way that you understood he was using you, and it brought tears to your eyes, and you begin to realize, who am I? But you mean God in heaven that created the earth, that created the air that I breathe? You mean God would use me? Yes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, by the great pleasure of God to involve him, by the great joy that came to the heart of God to include Paul in the mix of what God was doing. God wants to use you this morning. That's, how, that's the goodness of God. Wayne, I'm unusable. Now, careful. When you turn toward him and say yes, you become usable immediately. We come up with this term, the, cl- the, the clergy and the laity. That's nowhere in Scripture. It's in the book of Hesitations, chapter 11, verse 4. <laughs> anybody, anybody that's a believer that understands he's a vessel set apart to God, then he can be usable. He's a minister. He's a missionary. Missions are not across the world, but see, missions across the street. But the goodness of God, the pleasure of God to use his people. Now listen, since he wants to use us, that leads me to my second point, the purpose of God to locate his people. You see, God not only wants to use us, God not only only has a plan for our life, God knows where to put us to where we can become the most usable to him. No one is where they are by accident. You and I are not in Albuquerque by accident, but by divine appointment. I wonder if you figured that out yet. God wants his people where he wants them so they can affect the world around them. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, now watch, to the church which is at Corinth with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Now let's take that last phrase first, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. 
Remember that Achaia was mostly southern Greece. Remember Corinth was on that little isthmus that connected northern and southern Greece. However, Achaia actually extended up into more part of the central part of Greece. These letters that were written by Paul were read by all in the surrounding area to the church uh, to whom it was addressed. It would be passed out to other believers. The word saint, saints in Achaia, would refer to all the believers in the region, not just in Corinth. And the word saint is not something that man makes. The word saint is a a person who's been set apart unto God so that God can use him where God chooses to put him. That's what the word saint's all about. I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. I'm a vessel. God wants to work through my life. And so God had his people strategically located all over Greece, right where he wanted them. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Now, he wanted to make sure, and we already see it in the statement with the saints in Achaia, that the church wasn't just at Corinth. In Romans 16, 1, he talks about the church, which is at Sincrea. In Acts 8, 1, he talks about the church, which is at Jerusalem. In Acts 13, 1, the church, which is at Antioch, and so on, and so on, and so on. It goes all the way through. In Albuquerque, it would be the church that's located on the corner of Harper and Ventura and Academy, but also the church that's located down on Osuna, also, but also the church that's located over on Paseo del Norte and all over this city. God, deliver us from ever thinking we are the church. Oh, no. God has his church everywhere, exactly where he wanted it located. And that's, his, that's the point I want to make. My point is that the church is believers wherever you find them. The word for church is a very special word and, and bore a lot of meaning to the Corinthian believers. Ecclesia is the word for church. The word means the called out ones. Ek means out of. If I have a pen inside my pocket, inside my pocket, and I pull it out of it, that's ek. It was a part of my pocket. My pocket now misses that pen because it's gone. But I have a pen and I put it up next to my pocket and take it away, that's apo. It's taken away from. It was never a part. It was just up near it. And so this word ekklesia, you're taken out of something you used to be a part of. And 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 talks about all the sinful ways in which they were a part of, of the Corinthian world at that time, and God called them out of that. And then the word for call is kaleo, the called out ones, ecclesia, the called out ones. It's never used of a pagan religion in any kind of literature, particularly Scripture, which is not just literature, it's God's Word. It's a term especially reserved for God's people. Believers, it's very unique. It it describes an individual who's come to know Christ and is a brand new creature in him. It implies not only a change of life, but it implies a change of lifestyle of the people who claim to be a believer, a called out one. It doesn't mean that we're not to be in the world. Oh, no. It means that we're not to be of the world. Oh, what this should have said to the church which was at Corinth. If you've studied it, and I tried to briefly give you a picture of it last time, the Corinthian believers in Corinth, that's their biggest mistake. They had allowed Corinth to get inside the church. You see, they weren't usable to God. 
They weren't there to influence the people around them. They didn't understand. They were located where they were located so that others might come to have what they had. No, they let the world get inside the church. Now, by using the term church, which is Christ's body, we need to realize it only has one head, and that head is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Paul, speaking in, in, uh, of the order and the form and the function of marriage, says in Ephesians 5, 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. Why is Christ head of the church? It says he himself being the Savior of the body. Nobody's loved the church. He, he's the founder of it because he died for it upon the cross. Speaking of Christ in Colossians 1.18, Paul says he, Christ, is also head of the body, the church. Now, what are you saying, Wayne? Why are you bringing this up? Oh, it's so significant. Because the Corinthian believers confused that point. Instead of Christ being the head of the church, they thought the preachers were the head of the church. Some were of Paul, some were of Paulus, and some were of Cephas, which is the Aramaic name for Simon Peter. They, they thought that men were the head of the church. The preacher's not the head of the church. Paul, just by saying to the church of God, he says in, in implication, he says in the word, the preacher's not the head of the church. The elders are not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. And God has located the church strategically. He has the people where he wants them to be. He wants to use them as they live under his headship, under his lordship. No matter where the church is found, whether it should be scattered in Achaia or whether it be located right there centrally in Corinth, it has one head, and that head is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to be in the world, but not of the world. Do you realize that a boat being in the waters by design, but water being in the boat is disaster? Now, how many of you ever bass fished? How many of you out here has ever bass fished? Boy, most of you have never had a life. <laughs> I know trout are nice, but I mean bass fish. You go to the south and you bass fish, and you got bass boats. I love those bass boats. Jim's got one in his garage. You want to buy one? Anyway, there's a bass boat. The greatest day in your life is when you buy one. The best, second best day is when you sell it. But these bass boats have a platform in the front and a platform in the back. And you step up on them and you fish. Ooh, it's awesome. Cost a fortune to own one because the gasoline and the batteries and everything else. But it's wonderful if you can do it. And uh, I was fishing with a friend of mine who's a professional fisherman over in Nashville, Tennessee. Actually lives in uh, Hendersonville. And he had me, taken me out on the lake at night. And I'm standing up on that deck. Now, if you feel water on your feet and you're standing on the deck, you're in deep trouble. Because that water has gotten into the bottom part of the boat. Now it's filled up and it's come up on the top deck that you're standing on. I'm standing there and I, every time I'd step, it'd mush, you know, to squish and squish and squish. And I said, you know, there's something. And I said, Kenny, I'm standing in water. <laughs> and he said, oh, no. He had forgotten to put the plug in the back of the boat. Professional. You understand he's a professional fisherman. I mean, he knows better. And, of course, I was on the back of the boat getting wet. We had to crank that thing up, put it at top speed, and let that water drain out so he could get that plug back in there because water in the boat is disaster. A boat in the water is by design. So the, the church, it's in the world. 
God located the believers at Corinth that he wanted there. He put the rest of them scattered out through Achaia, and he, Paul writes this letter. I wonder how many of us are here, probably most of us that are in this service, you've been here for a while. But I just wonder how many are here and don't want to be here. You don't like flat-roofed houses. You don't like stucco. You don't like brown. <laughs> you don't like desert. You don't like this side of the Rockies because you like the other side. It's prettier. I wonder how many are here like that. I wonder how many have come in from Kirtland Air Force Base, and you said, Lord, there are other Air Force bases. Why did you put me at Kirtland? I'm trying to tell you something. God has located you here. Why? Because he wants to use you to influence the world around you, to the saints, to the, to the church which is at Corinth in the area of, of, of Achaia. I wish we could understand that God's a way ahead of all of us. And it doesn't matter if you don't like dry climate. It doesn't matter if you don't like the fact that it never rains except for the last three weeks. It doesn't matter if you don't like flat-roofed houses. It just doesn't matter if you like, don't like confrontational people that are in your face. It just doesn't matter. God locates his people to where he can use them the most. I wonder. I wonder if you've come to grips with that yet. I wonder if you've come to grips with that. It's incredible how we always have plan B up sleeve in it. Well, if this doesn't work, I know where I'm going. It's going to have green. You haven't understood yet, though, where it's green, the mosquitoes, the state birds. So you've got to remember that. <laughs> There's other things that go with being green. Why does God have you here? Why does God have you at Hoffman and Hoffmantown and not down the street at another church or another place? God knows where he wants you. And God wants you to be, wherever you are, influencing the people that are around you. That's the goodness of God. His pleasure to involve us, but His purpose to locate us. He puts us exactly where He wants us to be. And most of us spend half of our life frustrated with Him and never look, looking at what He's doing in our life. See, that's the whole key, the pleasure of God to use His people, the purpose of God to locate his people. I never thought I'd be living in Albuquerque. Some of you can say the same thing. But I'll tell you what, when you start walking by faith, he'll give you a love like you didn't know you could have for a place. He's given that to me. How many could say it's the same thing in here? You, yeah. You see, you can't. How many are just absolutely from Albuquerque? You've just been here all your life. Okay. How many came into Albuquerque from someplace else? Whoa. Whoa. You see what I'm saying? God directs us. And this is what God put on my heart as he said, the church of God, which is at Corinth. Oh, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. And all the saints which are in Achaia, he had them scattered everywhere, right where he wanted them to influence the world around him. You say, Wayne, I know God wants to use me, and I realize now that God's located me, but I can't. Well, that's the best thing you can say because that leads me to the third point. The passion of God to enable his people. You see, God doesn't just want to use you. God puts you where he wants to use you. And then he lives in you to enable you to be everything he wants you to be. You say, Wayne, where do you find these things? Just keep reading. Look at verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, Wayne, that's just a greeting. Are you kidding me? 
Have you ever backed up to understand what that means and what it would mean to the church of Corinth? Grace and peace are two of the most important words in our spiritual vocabulary, and we need to know what they are. In understanding the word grace, we have, which is the transforming power of God, we need to understand what grace is Paul talking about. What grace? You see, grace is a huge subject. It's, a, it's the house that all the blessings of God live in, and Christ is the source of every bit of it. He, Paul told Timothy, be strong in the grace which is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he lives in us, and it's a huge subject when you talk about grace. The believers in Corinth already had experienced saving grace. If you study 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, it says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. And very specifically, that's Christ coming to live in them. That's saving grace that they've experienced. But grace is not only that which saves us. Grace, Christ in us, is that which transforms us. Once Christ, who is the source of grace, comes to live in us, and this is what so many people have not seen yet, he comes in to replace us. He didn't make our flesh any better. My flesh is worse off today than it was when I got saved. The difference is it's been delivered from its power. I've been delivered from its power. He comes to replace me. He wants to live his life through us daily, transforming us, enabling us to be used in the place to where he's located us. That's why he lives in us. So Paul is wishing for them to experience the living grace of Christ. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but what? Christ lives where? In me. That's what Paul is saying. I live in that train. That's how Paul was able to affect the known world at that time, the Gentile world. It wasn't Paul. It was Christ in Paul. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. In verse 21 of Galatians 2, Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God. What grace? It can't be saving grace. I've already experienced that. It's that living grace. Paul says, I do not set aside. That's what the word nullify means. I do not frustrate Christ living his life in and through me. Why? Because I want to be used of him. Where? Wherever God locates me. And I want his power to be my power to experience it every day. I want to walk in the newness of his life. This grace had so transformed Paul. In Romans 15, 17, and 18, he says, I wouldn't even open my mouth to speak of anything I could do for God. That's religion. I've been there, done that. He said, I would only speak of the things which God has done through me. Christ has done through me. This grace was so awesome. He desires it for the Romans. He, he says the very same grace to you and peace. He says the same thing to the Corinthians. He wanted the Galatians to experience it. He wanted the Ephesians to experience it. He wanted the Philippians, the Colossians, and the Thessalonians to experience it. He tells them all the same thing. Grace to you and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knows from his own personal experience that nothing satisfies the believer more than living in the living grace of God. There's nothing beyond wanting to experience him. He said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, I want to know him by experience. And I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of his suffering, not the stuff that I bring on myself. I want to know what it's like to experience Christ living in me.
So he says, grace to you. And then he says, and peace. Now, I want to share something with you. Have you ever noticed that peace always follows grace? You'll never find peace first. Grace is first, and then peace. There is no peace in a believer's life until he's experiencing the living grace of God. There's no peace. Oh, Brother Wayne, I need a vacation. I need to get away from it all. The problem is you took the problem with you. There's not going to be any peace where you go. You might find serenity, but peace is far beyond that. That's only experienced when we come before him and say, Oh, God, thank you that you want to use me. I'm overwhelmed. And, oh, God, thank you that you've located me where you want me to be located. And, oh, God, I can't do it. You never said I could. But by your grace, you can, and you always said you would. That's when the peace comes back into the heart, when you know you're where you ought to be, and you know you're doing what you ought to be doing. And you see, the Corinthians, they knew this firsthand from the opposite side. They knew what it was like to have no peace the whole study of the First Corinthians, they've experienced division and quarreling and the worst kind of doctrinal error. Why? Because they set aside the grace of God. They set it aside. We don't need you, God. We're going to do it our way. We love the world and how they do things. We're going to do it their way. And they forfeited the peace that could have been theirs. So you see, this says something very profound to this church. This church has been there, done that. And Paul's trying to get it across to them once again by reminding them. So in the first two verses, we see the goodness of God, His pleasure to use us, to use us, use people, His people. We see His purpose, that He has a purpose in locating us where we are to influence the world around us. But we see His passion to enable us to be what He wants us to be. Yeah, I just want to ask you a few questions as we bring this to a close today. What's God's plan for your life? What is God's plan for your life, Brother Wayne? I, I've never known anything about what you're talking about. Let me ask you a question. Then go back to your salvation experience. Are you sure you know Christ in your life? I was a minister for eight years before I came to know Christ. I know how to play that game. Are you allowing God to use you to transform the world around you, to influence the people around you no matter where it is? Are you allowing God to enable you with his power? What's going on in your life? When I was thinking of an illustration for this, I thought about the mentor that I had for all of those years. 18 years I was with him, but 10 years he mentored me personally, individually, in Dr. Spiro Zoliades. How many were here when he came about a year or so ago, a couple years ago? Remember when he came and he, he got on you, he said, your preacher will never learn how to pronounce the Greek word. Remember that? <laughs> Do you remember what I told him? He couldn't say Albuquerque. <laughs> he butchered it. And after he finished the last service, I said, Brother Spiros, when you learn how to speak and pronounce Albuquerque, I'll start working on my Greek pronunciation. What a dear man. What a Paul in my life. I was his Timothy. He called me that for all those years. Born in Cyprus of a Greek Orthodox family. His brother, older brother, came to know Christ in a meeting that he had stumbled into and came home to tell his family. His mother and father kicked him out of the house. You will not be in this house anymore. Took his belongings and left. Next morning, the mother went out to get the milk and kneeling on the porch praying for the family was that older brother who had never left. He'd stayed there all night long praying for his mom and daddy and his younger brother named Spiros. And the mother said, I can't stand it. Come in and tell us what you want to tell us. The whole family got saved, and Spiros now was a believer. God located him, not in Greece, 
But in America, and not only in America, but in Chattanooga, Tennessee, because he knew a little thick head, a big thick head, that was going to come there as pastor, didn't know enough to get in out of the, out of the rain. And Spiros chose, out of his own goodness of his heart, God loving through him, to take me under his wing. And for 10 years, seven hours a week, I did his radio and television with him called New Testament Light, 700 stations. Now, some of those were 50-watt stations and put on collar, but we were also on WOR in New York City, one of the most powerful stations in the country. And you know, if you ever heard us on the radio, you would know which one was me. I was always the one saying, is that right? I didn't know that. <laughs> I was the dummy. He was the teacher. But Spiros, who could have been doing a thousand different other things, God put on his heart to take a young preacher that didn't have enough sense to know what he was doing and take him up under his wing and challenge him and make him learn how to think. And for all of those years, he's written over 400 books. And God continues to enable him to influence and transform this world today. He's almost 86 years old. His body says, well, listen, it's time for you to die. <laughs> and the Spirit said, not yet. <laughs> and just keeps on energizing him day in and day out. You know what that does for me? That puts, that puts an example in front of me. I mean, that's, I, I can understand from Paul, but you know, it's been a long time ago. I can look at him, and I can see flesh and blood, and I can see a man who understood that God locates people where he wants to, to locate them, who understood that God really did want to use him, who was humble enough to realize he couldn't, and only God could, and that the grace of God use him to transform Christianity all over this known world in understanding God's Word. I want to ask you a question. What does God want to do through you today to influence the people you're around, to change your whole demeanor, to put such love in you, you'd even give your brother the benefit of the doubt, and to be a walking vessel through whom God can live his life, energized by his grace, located by his purpose, and usable for his pleasure? I just wonder. You know what? I believe Albuquerque's waiting on us to start understanding that we are to go out there and let Jesus be Jesus in us, to change this city, to change this state, and not just us, all the believers that are scattered all over this area. He wants to use us. Is God using you? Are you in a position to say yes to him? and allow him to influence the people around you. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.